0: A reading from the Acts of the Apostles, hear now the Word of God. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know, what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. He who is the Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath, and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At this point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that the repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and see, I am sending upon you what my Father promised, so stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them, and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
2: Let's pray. Gracious God, Father, Son, Spirit, we are grateful today to be able to come into your presence and worship you, and we are grateful for this word from your Apostle Paul that reminds us that indeed you are not far from each one of us. So as we sit with your scriptures today, as we reflect on what it is that you would have us to hear, would you reveal yourself as the Lord who is near And would you stir our hearts that they may burn within us, that we may desire, love, and worship you more wholly, more fully, and in a more life-giving way. We ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Why worship anything? That's the question we're considering this morning as we continue our series of questions that linger. And these questions that we're focusing on during this eight-week series, they aren't random. uh, Nor are they necessarily like the top eight questions that would feature in conversations around faith and doubt. That would be its own interesting and very worthwhile series, certainly with some overlap uh, with this series. But the questions we've selected for this particular series, questions that linger, are ones that we think actually help us reflect deeply on the mission and vision of City Church. Questions that help us to get at, what are we all about? What is the point of our being here as a worshiping community on mission together in the city of Philadelphia? And of course, the City Church question is embedded in a larger question, right? Or maybe many larger questions about the identity and vocation of the church in general, or of even humanity, In general who are we why are we here what ought we to do which makes this question of worship all the more interesting and relevant because here at City Church or really at any church I would imagine our gathered worship is the central thing that we do together as a community right it's the main event if you will of our life together Last year when we spent the fall focusing on spiritual formation and we explored some of the historic practices that the church throughout the ages has embraced as valuable for cultivating spiritual growth and a life of discipleship. We began that unit by focusing on the gathered corporate worship of the church as the number one most important practice that you and I need in order to grow up into the likeness of Christ. Why? Well, because Christianity never has been and cannot be a solo sport. Because at its core, Christianity is about what God has done in Christ to reconcile us to himself and to one another and to the world, right? Which is why the primary way that Christians worship is together, not alone. That's why this climactic moment in our worship service every week is this thing that happens around the table of Christ where we, reconciled to God and to one another, come together around one table to commune in one spirit as one family in all of our glorious diversity. Worship. It's the central practice of our life together as the community of the church, whether we're talking about city church or the church of Jesus in the world. And yet, we do this, and we live in this way, in a time and in a place where religious worship is falling out of fashion uh, at an unprecedented and rapid rate. Um, Just to take a stock of the lay of the land, today about 25% of Americans and about 40% of those aged 18 to 29 identify as religiously unaffiliated. Um, which makes unaffiliated the largest single religious group, if we may speak of it that way, in the United States. In fact, unaffiliated is larger itself than all of the various forms of Protestant Christianity combined. And it's the fastest growing group. Uh, Since the 1980s, the percentage of young adults who would identify as religiously unaffiliated has basically quadrupled. So obviously the question, why worship anything, is a relevant one. And it's not unreasonable for us to wonder, uh, is there any point? Is there any point to all of this? Are we just wasting our time? Or is the point of coming and engaging in Christian worship just a matter of whether you enjoy it? Where, like, if you don't, then just opt out. It becomes a matter of simply, do I feel like doing that today? Or is there something more? And I think the two passages of scripture that we just read provide a nice touchstone for us in this conversation. And I'd like for us to consider each of them briefly as we reflect on really three related questions together. And the first question is just the one we've already named. Why worship anything? And what I hope we'll see as we unpack what worship is and how it works in our life, that what we'll see is there really isn't like a non-worshiping option available to us as human beings. All humans worship. And if we can acknowledge that, that we all worship something, even when we don't recognize that that's what we're doing, uh, we then move along to a question I think is maybe more worth our time and camping out on, which is not simply why worship anything, but why worship Jesus? Among all the many someones and somethings that we might actually pledge our allegiance to, and cast our desires upon, and seek to make meaning out of and with, why Jesus instead of something or someone else? And then lastly, briefly, as we think about our community in particular, why worship Jesus in the way that we do at City Church? I mean, even if this is your first time ever worshiping with your worshiping with us here today it's probably obvious already that we use a rather scripted liturgy in our worship which might feel strange it felt strange to me the first time I was here maybe it feels strange to you so why do we do that what's up with the liturgy I want to just briefly camp out on that one at the very end so those are our questions I'd like to explore together first why worship anything And I've already spilled the beans on this, where I want to go. I mean, I think the reason we worship anything is because there's not another way to do it. Um, At least as far as I can tell, if you can see a way that is a non-worshipping way of being human in the world, I would love to hear about that from you. And please talk to me afterward. But I don't see another way to do it. And what do I mean? Well, I think... Jamie Smith says it well in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, where he talks about humans as being fundamentally driven by and oriented to our loves, our desires. That It's not so much what we believe that makes us tick, that's the engine that drives us, but it's what we love even more fundamentally at our core. And he says that our ultimate love, that to which we are fundamentally oriented, what governs our vision of the good life, what shapes and molds our being in the world, could also be described as that to which we ultimately pledge allegiance. Or to evoke language that is both religious and ancient, our ultimate love is that which we worship. And if that's how we're thinking about worship, if we can let that definition, that dynamic, shape our imagination for what worship is and is all about, we could worship just about anything, right? Something good, something bad, anything we make ultimate in our lives. We could, we could love success ultimately, which would drive us to pledge allegiance to our career track or our kids' career track, their development, right? Whatever. The th- everything else begins to fall in line behind that. Everything else gets subordinated to what we love the most. Or maybe we love our personal freedom, ultimately, which could av- lead us to avoid making commitments or could it lead us to avoid being generous with our resources because we want to stockpile as much as we can so that we have as many options as we might have at any given moment. Or we'd love security, which could drive us to give our greatest energy and the biggest piece of ourselves to building our castle, right? To fortifying ourselves against every possible threat foreign and domestic, right? We stockpile resources, we avoid risk, we live out of fears, we withdraw from others, whatever it is, and on and on and on and on. We can't help but live lives as worshipers. As we cast our hopes and dreams upon things we think will give us the good life we envision for ourselves or for the world. And that's what David Foster Wallace is getting at in that reflection quote printed for us in the beginning of our bulletin when he says famously that in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. There's not another way. And so the more important question than why worship anything, I think, is why worship Jesus? Or more precisely, why worship God the triune God who makes himself known to us in Jesus and this is exactly what the apostle Paul wants to discuss with the people of Athens Greece that we just read about in this passage in Acts 17. Paul arrives in Athens and he sees this city that's full of worshipers worshiping all kinds of things. And so he starts doing what he does. He goes to the synagogues, and he goes to the marketplace. And he starts just talking with everyone he can find. This is Paul who's going to do Paul, right? This is how he rolls. So Paul goes to this new city, and he's in these informal spaces where he's meeting people in the synagogue. He's meeting people in the marketplace. It'd be sort of like us taking up conversations, you know, at the bar, at the coffee shop, on Twitter, whatever, where you're just in these informal gathering spaces, striking up conversation with people. And so he strikes up conversations with the Epicureans. Who are the Epicureans? Well, they're the people who are kind of like your, you know, live your best life people. They're the people who find where where is meaning, where is joy, where is happiness? It's in the here and now. It's in the enjoying, the physical, the material things. Eat, drink, and be merry. Live your best life. Hashtag winning, right? They're the ones tweeting photos of their latest filet mignon or their, their yacht trip around the Mediterranean. And he strikes up conversation with the Stoics. Like, who are the Stoics? They're the ones who find the meaning of life, the good stuff, the important stuff, not in the enjoyment of the material goods and the meals and the parties and the dancing, but in the cultivating of inner virtue. They're the woke people, right? They're the ones who want to rise above it all and and be the ones that see things really clearly. They're the ones who, uh, that want to be able to almost like transcend the fray, right? It's just in their own moment, your maturity as a stoic as opposed to being a maturely woke person would be measured not in your appropriately and masterfully deftly tweeted outrage at just the right person in just the right way, but it would be actually being non-reactive across the board in the face of all of these ebbs and flows. Um, And so Paul, he engages these people and he starts speaking in these informal venues. But he kind of strikes up a conversation that some people are interested in or some people are wondering about. And they're like, what's this guy talking about? He's talking about foreign divinities. Who is this babbler? And so they bring him to the more formal space, the Areopagus, the big rock that's at the top of the hill, above the marketplace, or if you go up there, and if you go up there today, be careful, it's very slippery, actually. Um, many, many feet have worn a very uh, bald face on that rock. But he goes up to this Areopagus, this rock that overlooks the Acropolis. The Parthenon is up there on one side. The Marketplace, the Agora, is down there at the bottom of the hill. And the Areopagus is where they would hold court. And it's where the Areopagites, these, you know, almost like elders, judges of the community would hear the cases and matters civil and criminal and religious. It's a little bit of a more formal setting. And so they bring Paul to the Areopagus and they want to hear more. And this is where Paul gives like his TED talk, right? It's the more formal venue. This is where he gives uh, maybe more like his speech from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, where he's got a real audience and he has something really crafted and thoughtful to say. And he begins to tell them in their own terms, why worship God as he makes himself known in Jesus? As opposed to worshiping all these many, many, many other things. As opposed to making meaning of life in all of these other ways. And the number one reason that he basically points to is that Jesus is the way God has made himself known to human beings on earth. In other words, he's real. The reason that we worship God as he makes himself known to us in Jesus, as opposed to all of these many other things, is that this God who has made himself known in Jesus is the true and living God. That's not a really results-driven way of figuring this out, but that's like kind of the most basic thing that Paul wants to get across as he's addressing this crowd at the Areopagus. Worship is the only response that makes any sense when we encounter the reality of who this God is and what this God has done for us in Christ. He's our creator. He's our sustainer. He's our savior. He's the one in whom all things hold together. Paul says even your own poets have written about this kind of stuff, right? In him we live and move and have our being. It's like if he came to Art Moment, he'd be like, even your poets have said, all you need is love and, you know, they're on something. But what is love? What is it? What kind of love do you need? Paul, he meets them on their own turf. He speaks their language and he introduces them to this unknown God. And he says, This unknown God is the, the God. And he's made himself known to us in Jesus. Let me tell you about him. C.S. Lewis famously said Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And Paul wants to help the Athenians discover that following Jesus, knowing God in and through Jesus, is of infinite importance because he's real. This is what the scriptures testify to. This is what the apostles gave their lives to testify to. This is what the witness of the church throughout the ages has been that what God has done in Christ is real, it's true. And is of the utmost importance. And so that's one reason. Why worship Jesus? Well, because he's real. He's true. And the only appropriate response to the reality of who Jesus is, when we begin to actually discover who this God is, who is not far off, but is nearer than we think, the only appropriate response is worship. So that's one reason, because it's true. The story is true. But the other reason, another reason, is that because Jesus is better. Not just that he's true and real, but he's better than all the other objects of our worship. He's better for the world, and ultimately he's better for you and me as well. Just think about this for a minute. Can you imagine what the world would be like if everyone everywhere consistently aimed the energy and passion of their lives, of our lives, in the direction of Jesus— and sought to live as consistently as possible the way he lived in the earth. Can you imagine what that would do to life on planet earth if we all did that? Just a couple of weeks ago, or whenever that was, last week, two weeks ago, when we considered what's wrong with the world. And when you start to boil it all down, what's wrong with the world, one of the most fundamental problems that we can all identify is our own self-orientation. The fact that we are opportunistic more than we are loving to those around us. Human selfishness, it's this poisoned fount from which springs so much of what's wrong with the world. What greater antidote to evil could there be than the self-sacrificial love we see modeled for us in the life of Jesus? Worshiping God in and through Christ and His Spirit, it forms us. It forms us as a people whose thoughts and prayers and habits and instincts and reflexes become more and more attuned to God's love for us and for our neighbor. We become more Christ like. Worshiping God in Christ draws us up into what Father Richard Rohr calls divine participation. In which we are receiving, savoring, and extending God's love. But it's not just about what worshiping God and in and through Jesus does for us or does in us for the sake of the world, but it's about what worshiping God does in us for our own personal wholeness and well being as well. God's the only object of our worship that in the end actually gives us the life and the wholeness that we crave rather than depleting us of it. To come back to David Foster Wallace, we've, we've visited time and again over the years, but in that same speech where he said, in the day-to-day adult trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism, he also starts to unpack what happens when you begin to worship other things. And he begins to paint a picture of how all these other things that we pledge allegiance to, that we pin our hopes and dreams to, they steal life. We, we think that they're going to serve our purposes, and so we enlist them on our mission. But it's not long before the tables turn and we end up serving them, and they become the cruel master that actually begins to quench the life we seek. Wallace says this, he says, if you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when your time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious, they're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Why worship Jesus? Because he's better. He's better for the world because he forms us into people who live like him in the world. And he's better for us because actually he's the one who is the giver of life. He's the one who calls us into love and service toward him that becomes the way that we become partakers of the life and the joy and the wholeness for which he has made us. We worship Jesus because he's better. But the third reason we worship Jesus is because he's the one who makes our heart burn within us. Think about this story from Luke 24. We read a, a bit of it from the end of that story of on the, the road to Emmaus and its aftermath where the risen Jesus has met these followers on the road and they end up meeting him and breaking bread with him. They see him. They, uh, they, their hearts burn within them. Then Jesus goes to these apostles, the disciples. He, he visits them as well and we see them worshiping him as well. And I, what I love about that is that those two stories actually connect Worship and our burning hearts in two very different ways. At the end, the part that we just read, we see this group of disciples seeing seeing Jesus ascend and then they're worshiping him. Why? They're worshiping him because their hearts are burning within them. They've experienced something about the risen Christ and so they're compelled into this act of worship because of who Jesus is. But in the episode just before this, there are these two men that are walking on the road and Jesus meets them and he's opening up the scriptures and then he breaks bread with them and their eyes are open and they behold him and he's gone. And they say, did our hearts not burn within us? And they worship him because, right? Or they, rather, their hearts burn because they've been with him in worship. It's both, it's both the result and the compelling force. It's an iterative process. And so for some of us, we're drawn to worship because we've sensed or we've tasted the sweetness of who Jesus is. We've had the experience. We know him. And so we long to come. We long to have our lives once again drawn up into this story, drawn up into the movement of meeting God. But for others of us, that doesn't. we're not feeling it right now. Others of us, it feels cold. It feels stale, maybe disingenuous. We feel like God is maybe not nearer than we think. So the love isn't there, or or at least our hearts aren't inflamed at the moment. What I love about the story is that for some, the burning heart is the doorway into worship. For others, the burning heart is what comes on the heels of having been with Jesus in worship. It produces the love, and the love compels us. It's an iterative process that God draws us into, this union and communion with him through Christ. And we see that play out in this beautiful story of the road to Emmaus that we enact every week when we break bread together in his presence. Which brings us to our final question, why worship Jesus in the particular way that we do at City Church? We, like our liturgy, we, we do. We, uh, it's obvious uh, that we follow a scripted liturgy. And for many, if not most among us, that could feel weird, at least at first. And let me just say this, because as I've had various conversations with people about why we do what we do in worship, um, I feel like it's important to say up front, it's not like we feel like we've gotten it right it's not, like, it's not like there's some one pristine right way to do this and we've found it, we've nailed it, and now we're really proud of it. That's not what it's about. There are all sorts of beautiful, powerful ways to worship God in spirit and in truth. And we don't pretend to have a monopoly or a corner on that market. But we are very intentional about the way we engage our practice of worship. And we try to be wise about why we do what we do because we're keenly aware that our habits shape us we're keenly aware that the liturgies of our lives shape our loves, that engine that's pumping at the core of our being. And so we've intentionally received a historic liturgy of the church, and we've intentionally sought to breathe life into it indigenously from within our own community with songs and prayers every week that are generated and brought together by our own people that we believe lead us In practicing for the kingdom of God. A liturgy that's designed to draw us into the drama that is the story of the world, and that is the story of your life, and that is the story of your week. And we act it out together, abridged in a powerful way, in less than an hour and a half every week, so that we might begin to see the stories of our lives, the story of the week. Through the prism of God's dynamic engagement with his people that we practice together here in worship every week, God gathers us to himself, he reconciles us. He makes us into these peace passers with one another. He forms us in his likeness. He feeds us at his table and he sends us out into the world under the banner of his love and his blessing with our renewed calling to serve him in the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so our work as we come into this space of worship is not simply to to reinforce the consumeristic narratives of who we are and what we're doing here that we're fed from our culture. We're not coming in here to this space to get the most out of it the way we would any other product we buy. Rather, we're coming to be drawn in our whole selves into an active, intentional engagement with God who moves, God who engages his people. We practice swimming in the current of God's movement in the world. We practice seeing our own life stories in light of his We practice being the beloved that we are so that we may be sent, renewed, and empowered to live into the life to which God calls us. As Tuck said a few weeks ago in his sermon, who are we? We are an offering to the world, an oblation. That's our identity, and that's our calling, and in our worship, we are formed more and more into that, that we may live in this Christ-like way in the earth which is the opposite of the identity and the vocation to which we're called by our culture. The culture of selfism, the culture of consumerism, the culture that says what I feel is what's most trustworthy and true about the world. We're formed in a deeper wisdom. We're formed in a deeper love and a deeper rootedness with God and with one another and the earth. And that is the rationale behind the shape of our worship. So why worship anything? Why worship Jesus? Why worship the way that we do? Well, as Alistair McGrath has said, because the bread of life will only satisfy your hunger if you actually feed on it. And that is what we're humbly trying to do as a worshiping community here together in this place for our own sake and for the sake of the world. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our God, we